Welcome to Beyond the Page, a podcast from People's World. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Chauncey K. Robinson. Beyond the Page is the podcast companion to People's World. Beyond the Page brings you in-depth interviews with journalists and activists on the most pressing stories on progressive politics, labor, and the struggle for socialism in the United States. In past weeks, we focused a lot on the election in the U.S., but this week we're looking forward to the new challenges that we face with the Biden administration and what work still needs to be done for building a more progressive future. So in this episode, we're bringing you interviews with Mark Grunberg, an associate editor of People's World, about labor and uh, joblessness, and also with John Bechtel for structures and a, a fusion movement uh, for the future. Before we go to the interviews, let me say, too, that if you like what we do, you can support us financially by going to peoplesworld.org and finding the donate button. Uh, anything that you might want to give us uh, definitely helps uh, keep the show running and keep People's World running. All right, let's go to the interview. So today we're speaking to Associate Editor and Washington Bureau Chief for People's World, Mark Gruenberg, who is joining us today. Hi, Mark. Good morning, Chauncey. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, so let's get right into it. There's a lot going on when it comes to, um, you know, going into the holiday season, but it's not so cheery necessarily with everything that's happening. You know, um, in the midst of a global pandemic that has killed nearly 300,000 people in this country and countless others worldwide, workers are still fighting for rights on the job. For example, workers are continuing to battle with Amazon billionaire Jeff Bezos, who himself has made millions during the pandemic, right? Can you give us an update of where the struggle stands at the moment and the demands workers are calling for? Well, the uh, with Amazon specifically, there's been there's been a major advance within the last couple of weeks in that warehouse workers in um, Alabama, Amazon warehouse workers have formally filed for a union election. They've had it up to here with the low pay, the bad working conditions, the lack of protection against the virus, you name it. Um, Amazon, Jeff Bezos, who's the richest man in the world, is adamantly anti-union, something that uh, we here in Washington know very well because he also owns our leading newspaper and the negotiations with him have been to say the least, somewhat fraught over the years. So, but his warehouse workers are mistreated and exploited worldwide. And I should add that these are workers who are many of them, many if not most, are black or brown or migrants or people who were who were refugees who have, who have entered this country for asylum or all of the above. And they work in these warehouses with no social distancing, low pay, no, no protection, no masks, even though they're shipping out masks and gloves and things like that uh, against the virus. And they finally have had it, in so many words, at least down in Alabama. And so they started a union drive at a, I think it's about a 1,300 person warehouse down in, down in the Birmingham area. That's where they are. Yeah, that's a really interesting story um, and pretty heartening to hear. You know, um, Amazon, uh, they always purport to be such a good employer that this is sort of the the pathway to a middle class job. You know, if you uh, uh, they're like really famous for paying their workers a $15 minimum wage. But at the same time, there's all these other things just like just like you said that are that are happening. Right. It's not all about the wage. It's like the uh, it's the union busting. It's the uh, 
the horrible working conditions that they they find themselves in uh there's just a lot going on there but it's a it's a good story it's good to hear about their union drive and um i mean i think everyone hopes that they win another thing they suffer from by the way is is the is is these uh is speed up quotas and the in the how since we were talking about the holiday season the speed up quotas are wor are worse than ever if you don't handle x amount of packages per minute you get written up so you know five or six write-ups and you get canned that's what happens when you don't have a union protecting you. Yeah, I was just going to add, like, it just kind of shows the insidious nature because in a way, Amazon workers have or are essential workers in this sense because so many people, as we said, you know, Jeff Bezos is making a killing, quite literally, in a way, with, you know, um, you know, all the money he's making because so many people, because of the pandemic, are turning to Amazon. And so, so these workers are so crucial for people to get their supplies, for people to get the things they're ordering. So they don't go out there necessarily and spreading the virus and, and whatnot. And yet they are um, getting the short end of the stick in terms of, uh, you know, coverage and, and help, even though he's making millions off of their labor. I should note, by the way, that Amazon, that it's not just the Amazon workers. There are other groups of exploited workers around the country who, seeing that their bosses don't want to protect them against the virus in particular, are turning to union drives. Um, National Nurses United just won the biggest uh, union recognition election in the South in decades among 1,600 workers, 1,600 RNs, and at a two hospital complex in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina is the second least unionized state in the country. And yet all of a sudden, it wasn't just all of a sudden, it took a long while, but the pandemic was the final push. Uh, you have these nurses voting overwhelmingly to unionize so that among other things, they can protect their patients and themselves from the pandemic. Yeah, Mark, thanks so much. It's always good to 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 get the uh, to get the bad news about Amazon out there. I think people need to know exactly what this huge company is is doing to their workers. It's so important. But to even just, you know, um, point out the ways that the pandemic has has uh, given ever, given other workers a, a shove into unionization is really um, it's, a, right. it's good news. It's helpful analysis for uh, the, the moment we're living in. Uh, but maybe we can pivot a little bit, uh, even though I would like to talk. Um, I would like to talk about Amazon and how bad they are all day. Uh, we could pivot talking a little bit more about um, joblessness in the United States. Um, we were just, you know, talking about how bad labor is and how um, how exploitative Amazon is. But uh, but people are uh, are suffering outside of jobs too. Um, you wrote in a recent article that joblessness in the United States is just soaring during the pandemic. Um, you have a really terrifying statistic uh, that one of every six U.S. workers is seeking or getting unemployment compensation right now, which is uh, just a huge number. It's uh, I'm, I'm glad you put it like that one six, because otherwise I don't think if my mind could really uh, wrap around that. So what do you think needs to be done to improve the issue? Um, what ways are Republicans, particularly Mitch McConnell, standing in the way of that? <laughs> I don't mean to just uh, I don't mean to be so partisan here, but uh we kind of know who's who's the block the blockade here. <laughs> yeah, he is the blockade. the The way to the way to do this is to, and this is something that uh, organized labor and civic groups and community groups and religious groups and the Purple's campaign have been saying now since March. Stop and think about that, please. Or it's actually since May when the CARES Act was passed that you need more long term aid for these hurting workers, again, a disproportionate number of whom are people of color. 
they're the ones who are not there. It's not just that they're losing their unemployment checks or or will after December 26th. It's that it's that they they don't they can't pay their rent they can't pay their bills they can't they can't pay their utilities they could be out on the street you know college kids are going to get their loans called in people are going to get their mortgages foreclosed et cetera et cetera et cetera et cetera all the way down the line what is Congress doing Mitch McConnell's holding up any type of aid at all for these folks Only, he'll give it to them in dribs and drabs, by the way, it's his stripped down bill is very small. Um, only if his colleagues grant him and the corporate class complete immunity from lawsuits from people who get sick or die because the firms aren't protecting workers and consumers against the virus. Stop and think about that for a minute. Yeah, that's the the liability shield we've heard so much about right. uh, coming out of the legislation. Right. Uh, does that seem like right. a possibility st still? Do you think that that's still in play, or do you think that's mostly out of the picture? Uh, it's in play, whether it might, but it might not pass. The, this weekend, the latest developments are that this weekend the Senate may take up two pieces of legislation. One would be everything but the liability bill and aid to state and local governments. And I'll get to that in a minute. That's one piece of legislation. The other piece of legislation would include more checks for the unemployed through April through April 30th. Uh, it would include aid to the schools to help them get back on their feet and sanitize and you know take everybody's temperature so the kids can actually go back to the classroom. It would involve aid to the buses and subway systems, aid to the postal service, aid, you know, aid to the aid to the flight attendants, so on and so forth. That one looks like it's going to be relatively safe. Looks like. I mean, anything could happen with this crowd. The other one has McConnell's brainstorm yoked to the to the 160 billion dollars for state and local governments. I'm going to back up here for a second. The state and local governments, when the when the depression hit, when we had to close everything down due to the virus the first time, their revenues tanked. They've had to lay off a million people so far. You know, firefighters, teachers, mental health workers, social service workers, even the people who help you try to find a new job. They've had to lay them off. They need money. They can't get it. Nobody's paying taxes because nobody's got other other people don't have jobs. Yeah. So they asked for half a billion dollars. This bill would give them 160, excuse me, half a trillion dollars. This bill would give them 160 billion, but yoke it to McConnell's brainstorm. And you can see the problem that McConnell's brainstorm could tank the state and local governments and those workers with it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. And, you know, I mean, I guess this connects to the next question of the government, right? Like how much it is, it affects what working people, what labor has to deal with going forward into um, the new year, which is, you know, a little bit of a changing political terrain as, you know, um, 
you know, a new White House administration comes in under Biden-Harris, you know, what role do you see the labor movement playing in dealing with the aftermath of a Trump reign, of the obstruction of, you know, what the GOP has turned into, in particular, the ways that the Trump administration attempted to dismantle, you know, or organized labor for four years now? And what do you think can be done to strengthen the the union movement and and better the rights of working people in this new political terrain that we're heading into? Well, point, uh, the the priorities of organized labor are, first of all, to pass the to pass the HEROES Act, which is the real aid bill that McConnell got, got from the House back in May and has, and has deep-sixed ever since. That That's the comprehensive bill with a lot of pro-worker provisions in it. Uh, the second priority is the Protect the right, right to Organize Act, the one that would rewrite labor laws in a pro-worker way, in the mo- in the most comprehensive manner since 1930, the original Wagner Act of 1935, and the, you know, not only would it you know sweep away a lot of the obstructions to unionizing, but President-elect Biden has his own provision he wants to put in it. If you're a chronic labor law violator, hint hint, Jeff Bezos, off you go to jail with perp walks for getting convicted. So that those are that. Labor movement's role going forward, pushing for both financial aid for hurting people and then long-term structural reform that uh, will produce a better society for workers. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought the PRO Act. Um, it's such an interesting and important uh, piece of legislation that I think really needs to uh, get passed. People are talking so much about uh, pulling Biden to the left, and I think that, that the, the PRO Act might be the place to do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a uh, you know it's hard it's hard to uh it's hard to be very positive about uh anything that might strengthen the carceral system in the United States but uh w- watching labor law violators go to jail is a hard thing to be upset about. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of this by the way let's put in a caveat there's always a caveat if the pro worker candidates don't win those two senate races in Georgia McConnell's blockade remains. That's true. Yeah. Which is why everybody's heading to Georgia now. <laughs> yeah. So necessary. It's crucial. Yes. Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. It's always great to talk to you. Um, really appreciate you uh, coming on the show and telling us uh, telling us what's happening with jobs and labor. Okay. You're quite welcome. And thanks, let's Mark. hope you have a happier new year. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Now we're joined by John Bechtel. He's a writer for People's World. Um, John, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Well, um, over the past few weeks, you've been working on a series of articles at People's World that have been pretty interesting, all about the importance of the continued unity in that uh, that big, broad coalition that elected in the Biden-Harris administration. So we talked about this coalition quite a bit before the election, but uh, now that the election is over, or at least it seems like it's over for the most part, who knows what will still happen? Uh, what can we make of that that coalition? In hindsight, like what did they uh, what did they accomplish? Oh, I think it was a historic victory. There's no doubt about it. Um, and ousting Trump, uh, who, who you know this is the first incumbent president to be ousted since what 1992. Um, so this was just an amazing victory. But when you consider it under the circumstances of uh, the pandemic, of the economic crisis, of uh, the most historic wave of protest the country has seen, um, and voter suppression, um, 
the right wing uh, um, media uh, or propaganda ecosystem that was, uh, uh, you know, dumping massive amounts of disinformation, um, the threats of violence, you know, by the Proud Boys and, and white supremacists, the effort to uh, sabotage the Postal Service. Uh, in the wake of all that, you had this historic voter turnout, um, which was just a, a, amazing. And and then since then, you know, the blocking of this Trump uh, attempted coup, uh, where the really the institutions of democracy, the guardrails, so to speak, even though they were battered, they held up. Uh, and it's it's really hard to grasp, I think, right now, um, you know, uh, how much the politics of the country have changed. Uh, I mean, we're dealing with a, a you know, a movement that kind of came to maturity in a lot of ways through four years of, of battling, you know, this administration. And there has been a shift in the political balance. We don't know quite yet how much because of the, um, we don't know the outcome of the races in Georgia, but even with that, um, you know, the country has changed. And so we'll see, you know, how, how things go forward. But the need for this broad people's coalition that defeated Trump is still going to be needed um, in the period ahead. It'll be a little bit different, but it's still going to be needed, the broad unity, because Republicans and all those forces behind the Republicans and the right wing will remain. By the way, just one other thought on that as well. You can kind of see the the, the changes, too, uh, in the way McConnell is um, handling this um, disaster relief you know, he had blocked it, as Mark uh, pointed out in the earlier section, um, the HEROES Act from last year. But all of a sudden, he's shifting because he uh, is getting a lot of pressure from, um, you know, the Republicans, and particularly in Georgia, who want something to be done. Otherwise, it really looks bad for them. Here they are holding up aid to millions of people, uh, many people who are, are uh, you know, running out of unemployment benefits, who are going... Uh, to food pantries, uh, and so without that aid, um, you know they're looking—they're re really looking bad. Uh, and so I think that kind of gives us a sense of what could possibly be in store for the next uh, four years, because you also have, uh, you know, a lot of uh, e Republican senators that are coming up for re-election in 2022, and so they can't just fully obstruct, you know, on a lot of these fronts. They have to. Uh, figure out how to protect their their flanks. Yeah, and you know what we're seeing in the what you said with the with the government itself and those actual officials and what's happening there. We're also seeing um, what you can call um, other forces as well. Even though uh, the election is over, you know, making their presence known um, and not so much in the in the great uh, positive sense. Of course, um, you know, because since Trump lost this past week, we saw a big show of force by the Proud Boys and other Trump supporters in uh, Washington, D.C. They violently attacked people and even burned Black Lives Matter signs in front of historically black churches. Are these the dying breaths of a defeated fascist movement? Or do you think organizations like the Proud Boys are just part of the new political terrain that we are finding ourselves in? Well, I actually think it's a little both um, because, you know, the country is changing uh, demographically. It's changing politically, too, um, and has been with the advances being made for equality, 
um, African-American equality for other people of color, for women, uh, LGBTQ equality, uh, the secularization, growing secularization of society. Um, all of these things threaten um, white supremacy, uh, white, white male supremacy, Christian, uh, uh, right-wing Christian nationalism. Um, and so you have a desperation to hold on to these things um, and actually to restore, to restore, to go back and restore what, what, uh, what was. And uh, so I think uh, on the one hand, we're going to continue uh, to see the sharpening struggle between what I call the, uh, you know, the struggle for a multiracial see um, on the one hand and the struggle for restoring uh, white supremacy and Christian nationalism and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and while those forces, I think, have been weakened, uh, it's going to continue because it's not just these forces, it's those actually more powerful economic forces uh, behind them, including uh, extreme right-wing billionaires. Uh, and then you also have this right-wing uh, propaganda uh, ecosystem <clears throat> which is um, you know, inundating tens of millions, indoctrinating tens of millions of Americans with lies, disinformation, and, and conspiracy theories. And that's not going to go away either. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way to put it. It's, uh, it's both and in terms of uh, the end of fascism and the continuation of it. Um, and you know, maybe uh, what we're seeing here probably has a lot, uh, uh, you know, some predictive power, what we'll see in the future as well. Well, in, in uh, your recent article, your most recent article uh, from the series that you've been writing, uh, you've been spending a lot of time talking about uh, a more unified fusion movement. I really like the phrase fusion movement. I think that you're borrowing from uh, Reverend Barber. You said that a fusion movement is necessary for the ongoing fight against fascism. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about that? Like, what's a fusion movement? How does that work? Um, is it, you know, just what we saw in this last election or is there more to it? Yeah. Um, well, we, you know, we live in a very complex, big and complex country um, with many different constituencies, competing interests. Um, uh, but at the same time, any kind of change that is necessary really requires, and especially radical change, requires big majorities of people, not only to kind of uh, agree on politics, but also act, act together. And a fusion movement is one that brings all of these intersecting, all of these different constituencies together around intersecting um, needs and solutions, um, whether it be uh, multiracial, uh, bringing together different, uh, uh, you know, communities of, of color, uh, men and women, the LGBT community, diverse gender communities, um, you name it, uh, bringing together all of these uh, different communities around both issues and uh, moral questions, because a lot, all, all these underlying all of these issues are questions of morality. And as uh, Reverend Barber says, you know, it's not, uh, you know, right uh, versus left, but it's right uh, versus wrong, and it's bringing together uh, the hood and and the holler, so to speak. Uh, and I think one of the examples of that is the 
uh, fight around uh, the in environment and environmental justice um, and, you know, some of the problems that have, uh, you know, cropped up or, or uh, we've gone through over the past uh, period between environmentalists and uh, organized labor. And it's not a matter of uh, jobs in the environment, but it's actually both, you know, we can create a green economy, create millions of jobs, and at the same time, save the save the planet and clean up uh, the environment, particularly in communities that have been discriminated against. Um, and I I think that you know it's about it's about it's about seeing these as as kind of overall an overall approach. So you have these interlocking crises uh, that we face as a country and as a world, whether it be uh, extreme economic inequality and social inequality, uh, the ecological devastation and climate crisis, which is an ex uh, existential crisis, uh, militarization and, and you know how the military budget is just taking a bigger and bigger part of our uh, national resources. Uh, and then I often throw in there also the technological revolution because uh, we don't know exactly uh, what impact technolo technology is going to have in terms of displacing jobs, but a lot of people see it anyway as a disruptive force in society. These are all really interlocking. They're interlocking, and they've gotten worse in the last four years under under Trump. They've been exasperated. All of these crises, uh, but they can also they also find they also have uh, interlocking solutions. Uh, so uh, you know, dealing with the environmental crisis and the ecological crisis and the climate crisis. Uh, can solve issues of of uh, jobs and inequality, um, and you know taxing the rich to to pay for uh, greening the economy um, and taking from the military budget and putting into to uh, you know um, uh, you know restoring the the uh, economy and um, greening the the uh, the economy and so on. Um, so all these things are interlocking, and that and that to me is part of. Uh, what in what could in undergird such a fusion movement? That sounds like it is, you know, something that is greatly needed, and also something that could end up being a lot of work to put together. Because you know, these things don't just you know happen overnight. Because there can be, um, you know, obstacles to that. You know, you make a persuasive argument for building a broad political coalition, though conservatives aren't the only obstacle when it comes to that you know there's uh one could argue that there's those who are liberals and maybe even some segments of the left that might even you know be a roadblock to some of this work so how do you think a coalition of progressives and leftists can work through the obstacles um to get to this fusion movement whether it be the obstacles of corporate democrats or others yeah well again this this broad uh coalition could call it a popular front uh, that defeated the extreme right, um, and it's going to continue. It has its own in, internal contradictions as well, because it's it's a multi-class coalition. So, yeah, even within the Democratic Party, for example, you have these competing forces. Um, and while they may, in in a lot of cases, be moving in the same direction, they have different, um, you know, paths and different. Uh, some are for more incremental change and others are, you know, for more radical uh, change. Um, 
and this is going to be an ongoing thing. Um, the to me the the big issue is 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 remaining united because the major threat is the extreme right. Uh, but how you so how you handle those differences is is really critical. Um, and I think already you know you're seeing that Biden, for example, can be can be moved, um, and he's he he can be moved uh, through pressure and just through the changing circumstances of of the movements and society and the needs of society. He's responded, you know, differently now than he did say 20 years ago. And I think you'll see most of the center forces, for example, in the Democratic Party have done that. I, I just point to the one thing just yesterday, you know, this uh, historic appointment of Deb ha uh, Haaland as interior secretary, that that was a demand that came, you know, from indigenous community, but also, you know, progressives and, and the left. And he responded to that, you know, this is a really historic appointment. Um, uh, but, and, you know, the left and progressives are not going to win all the battles. But um, the other big issue to me is how you affect the overall political balance of forces. Because if you want to move the politics and particularly the center forces in the Democratic Party, uh, in a more progressive direction, you also have to change the overall politics of the country or in specific areas in, in red states, so-called red states, red districts, and particularly in swing, swing districts. Uh, and that means that you have to engage and build movements in these areas, because in a lot of these areas, the Democratic Party, you know, has abandoned them or abandoned them uh, for various reasons, uh, beginning with the extreme gerrymandering and so on, um, and so disinvested in these areas. But these areas also lack, I think, they lack uh, the presence of organized labor, they lack other movements. And so uh, the, I think our, our movement is called upon to build infrastructure in all these areas, to engage voters, to and, and engaging voters and informing voters and organizing people at the grassroots, we can help to change the politics of these places and affect the overall politics of the country. And I think the best example of that is what has happened in Georgia. It was a 10-year process, um, you know, to organize people, overcome voter suppression, uh, organize people at the grassroots. And you're seeing that uh, now in what's taking place in that state. Yeah, I think that's a good word. I appreciate the term infrastructure in this case, that it's not just a it's not the exciting activist moment of like, uh, I don't know, a big groundswell of people or whatever, you know, you have to actually do the work in these spaces where uh, they've been, you know, largely abandoned by uh, politics proper and do that grass, that grassroots level work. I think that's a really good, uh, a good note for everyone listening <laughs> and thinking about how to apply some of this to uh, activist work. It's really helpful. Um, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been really great to hear from you. Um, always appreciate your insight. Yeah, thank you, John. Thank you. And I always enjoy talking to my two favorite podcast hosts. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Beyond the Page. If you like what you heard, follow People's World on social media. And remember, we take sides. Yours.